Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and you're about to listen to an old episode of a podcast that I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode focuses on the Showtime original series Dexter, starring Michael C. Hall, and originally aired on September 12th, 2013. That's very relevant because the finale of the original series of Dexter aired on September 22nd, 2013. Consequently, neither myself nor my guest for this podcast, uh, Say Mercati, have a whole lot to say about the finale because it hadn't happened yet. I assure you, we both had a lot of thoughts about how that show ended, as I'm sure most of you did. But if you're expecting a tearing into that particular finale and why it's one of the worst in television history, you won't find it here because it had not yet aired. Uh, depending on the air date in particular, we might have been two episodes away from the finale. Uh, again, somewhat depending on when we recorded this relative to when the shows, when the individual episodes aired. So, just throwing that out there, this is mostly a discussion about the first five-ish seasons. Uh, we all kind of agree that season six and seven are terrible. Uh, so we devoted most of our episode of the episode to talking about the parts of the show that we enjoyed. Funnily enough. Uh, this show is being presented here in conjunction with the uh, new Dexter season because that hurricane depositing him in the back country of Oregon to become a lumberjack was... Everyone's dunked on that ending forever, for good reason. But we're doing this in conjunction... Releasing this one in conjunction with the new series starting up, so... For whatever it's worth, you can take a listen to this particular episode. Alright, uh, before we get into the past. Let's go ahead and pay a few bills here. First up, we'd like to thank the sponsors for the show. Uh, Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M network, you can find uh, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Something this show could have used on something Dexter could have used a time or two. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. There will be a link in the description below if you are so inclined to use that. Also, we are sponsored by Amazon Music. Uh, this is getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Amazon Music is one of the best streaming music services out there. Uh, I don't have any... I would say that even if they weren't supporting the show, uh, the network actually, so... Uh, get a free 30 days on us. There will be a link in the description again, or getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. 30 days, free, no fuss, no muss, 70 million individual songs, uh, so, so many albums... If you like it, it's probably there. Give it a trial. If you like it, keep it. If not, then, well, you lost nothing. It was literally free. So click the link, fill out the description, fill out the little uh, form they give you that lets them know that we're the ones that sent you there. It helps out a lot. So thank you very much. That's always appreciated. And with that, let me throw it to my past self. Past me, take it away.
When the devil is too busy and death a bit too much, they call on me by name, you see, for my special touch. To the gentleman, I'm his fortune. To the ladies, I'm surprised. But call me by any name, anyway, it's all the same. I'm the fly in your suit, I'm the pestle in your shoe, I'm the bee beneath your bed, I'm the bump on every head, I'm the pill on which you slip, I'm the pit in every head, I'm the thorn in your side, makes you wiggle and ride. Tipses have to me I do it all because I'm evil And I do it all for free You'll killer all the pay I'll ever need Yes, ladies and gentlemen Tears of children or other people We do accept them as currency here on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy I am your host, Robert Winfrey, and thank you very much for joining us. This is being broadcast live on Friday the 13th. No better way to spend a Friday the 13th than talking bad guys. Well, I suppose being involved in a Friday the 13th movie marathon is a good way to do it as well, but hey, take some time off, listen to us jabber here, and then go back to Jason Voorhees killing people, because that's always a good time. Yes, I did say us. I'm not alone here. I do have a guest, and we are continuing our epic countdown to the finale of Breaking Bad. A couple of weeks from now will be the final episode of that series. We'll all be very sad to see it go. So in honor of that, we are counting down great television characters, good men who make bad choices, or just bad guys who the stories focus around. It's all good. I'm pretty lax about that. This week, the last three weeks have been focused on shows done by HBO. We had Oz, The Sopranos, and The Wire, and HBO can't get all of the love. There are other networks with other great shows, we're talking Showtime this week, and we are talking one of my brother's favorite shows, one that I'm rather fond of. We're talking about Michael C. Hall playing Dexter and the various world that he lives in down in Miami. A lot of good times to be had there. And as mentioned before, I'm not here alone. My guest at this time, he was here before when we talked about evil animals. Very insightful. You can check his, out his work on 411mania.com. Everybody help me welcome back Samer Cotty. Samer, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Robert. I'm glad to be back. Always glad to have you or anyone else who wants to be on this show. Doing it solo is kind of a pain. I have to find other clips and download them. And having someone else talk helps fill the time and makes my life exponentially. Now, we talked a bit about this before we went on the air, but you are a fairly substantial Dexter fan. In fact, when I I let everyone know that I was doing this countdown to Breaking Bad... I was given two pieces of advice from that, that seemed to resonate. They said, you have to have Mark Radlich on to talk about The Wire, and you have to have Sam Riccati on to talk about Dexter. Well, I fulfilled half of that. I had Mark Radlich on, and we talked about The Wire. Now I've got you here, and I want to talk about Dexter. So just kind of start us off with your introduction to the series uh, and your thoughts on the main character, since that's as good a place to start as any. The interesting, borderline sociopath, well, highly sociopathic Dexter Morse. <laughs> Yeah, as I said, uh, as I was, I was talking to you off the air, um, my exposure to television was mainly limited to sports. That's pretty much all I watched. Um, anything else, movies and whatever, I just used to buy them on DVDs or just go to the movies. I didn't watch much television outside of sports. Um, late last year, I thought that I'm really 
caught behind times and, you know, uh, doing podcasts with Jeremy Lambert, who's a pop culture guru, I really started finding myself a bit, really from the Stone Ages. That's how I felt. So I figured, no, nah, you know what, I better catch up. Um, I am fascinated by the murder mystery genre. I've, and as I told you off the air, yes, it might sound creepy, but serial killers fascinate me. Um, used to watch a ton of documentaries, still do, about real life serial killers. And any movie I can get my hands of that is, you know, along the lines of Seven and Science of the Lambs and those kind of movies, well, I never missed one. Now, after a while, you run out of good movies to watch, and then you run out of the crap. So I figured I might give series a try, and, you know, Dexter, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I watched it, was blown away by the first season, got hooked after that. You know, everybody knows the quality of the show hasn't really maintained its lofty standards set up by the first and second seasons, but Still, I think the first four seasons alone were so good, particularly one, two, and four, that it just, they were enough to amass the show a loyal, huge loyal following. Um, that, so that's kind of how I started with, um, that's, that's kind of how my, um, if you want to call it, love story with the show started, because I really, I, I love that show. Really, the first, the first four seasons are some of, the best television I've ever seen, and the character itself. I mean, it is ballsy to create a main protagonist being a serial killer, and he's supposed to be the quote-unquote hero of the show at the same time. Obviously, you know, that's not a, an accurate term by any means. But to make him likable and really push the viewer towards liking him from the get-go, really, was, I think, was a gamble. And a gamble that, that paid off big time to where they really managed to distort your views. I mean, after all, this is a person who's committing heinous acts, no matter the reason. But I feel the whole idea of the code, which Dexter goes by, meaning you know only killing people who, quote-unquote, deserve to die, makes it, it's not a cop-out, I don't think, because it might sound that way, where where it's like, all right, so... Here's our show's main character. He's, he's a serial killer, but oh wait, he only kills people who deserve that. It's almost like he's a serial killer version of Robin Hood. But as you watch the show develop, and as they explain the reasons behind Dexter's compulsions, and <clears throat> it's, they, they don't really shy away from explaining that this is a man with an urge to kill. So it's not, the code is only a way for him to control his, not control his actions, but at least channel them. And essentially, as Rock Lesnar would say, make chicken salad out of chicken shit. Um, so it's that aspect in particular I found highly fascinating, the way they were able to pull that off initially. And um, yeah, as I said, the quality has not been consistent, but as a character, Dexter Morgan, it, is really, I feel, one of the greatest characters in um, television history. And the way he's enriched, uh, for lack of a better term, by the other villains that he comes up against, you know, uh, after, uh, season after season, coming up against, you know, the likes of the Ice Truck Killer, um, the Trinity Killer, obviously, and even, even somebody like James Dokes, who was one of the few who were initially on to him. It really helps show you the evolution of the character. And obviously there's 
you know, the dual life aspect, which is also fascinating, which applies to a lot of serial killers and has many real life um, parallels, if you will. So I feel the show is much deeper than many would think, in my opinion. Many meaning people who don't really watch the show religion. I agree. There's a lot of interesting stuff that Dexter does, and I actually, my opinion of you know the Harry's Code that Dexter lives by, I've kind of maintained the opinion that it's not so much a way, you know, uh, I, I'm the oldest of four kids of four. I have three younger brothers. One of them, when I because I talk with them about what I do here for either whether I'm writing, whether I'm podcasting, we stay in, we communicate a fair amount. And he said to me, you know, what do you do? You know, you're going to talk about Dexter as a bad guy because you know he only kills bad. My initial response was, he only kills bad guys because they're easier to kill, and it lets him get away with it for longer. He does not kill them because they deserve to die. In the sense that you know, the Punisher, for example, goes around killing mob bosses because they're evil people. He has an urge to kill, and he kills people who he feels have escaped, not just he feels have escaped justice, but in some cases he will warp evidence so that he gets the chance to kill them because he needs to kill people. A compulsion he has that he has learned nothing more than how to prolong his ability to do it by killing people that no one's going to care about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really important to highlight the fact that he does not have a moral obligation to go at least people, as you just mentioned. And throughout, I think one of the most interesting parts they were, they've been able to establish is with time, you feel that occasionally some, some, some kills for Dexter are more personal than others and might be driven. And I'm not talking about the quote, yeah, I mean, I'm not talking about the major kills, the, 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 the season's main villain. Even something like, um, uh, I think, remember Little Chino, for example, in uh, season two? Yeah. Um, that huge uh, Hispanic man who, who had killed children and whatever. Even, even actually, the, 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 the opening scene of uh, the very first, of the pilot, you know, with Dexter being legitimately angered by a man who had killed children. So they do show you that he has, despite being a complete sociopath uh, or psychopath, they, they do show you that he has hints of morality, but ultimately that is not what's really driving him. In fact, throughout the show, Dexter does kill innocent people. There are not many, but he, he does, particularly in... For those, by the way, if you haven't realized already, this, this podcast is going to be filled with spoilers, but I'm sure people listening are expecting this. Um, after his wife dies... I think he kills a person out of complete rage because he insulted her or something. So, I mean, yeah, I that's what shows. I love that that uh he's planning to leave Miami after the death of his wife, uh Rita, played by Julie Ben. And he gets in his boat, he's traveling up one of the con- many canals that inhabit the lower Florida area and pulls in to get gas and he comes across this one rude hillbilly-like guy and Dexter corners him in the bathroom, and he says, oh, my wife just died, and he responds with, well, I'm really sorry about your fucking wife, but, and he just goes on a brief profanity-laden rant, and Dexter just very calmly leans over, picks up an anchor, a boat anchor from the shelf of this bathroom, and then proceeds to beat the man to death with it. They're in this, you know, dingy, backwoods, almost swamp-like air, uh, 
boat stop on a canal, and it's, it's also at that point that, Her- that uh, Harry, James Remar, re- resurfaces for the first time since, as purely a hallucination in Dexter's mind, but that's when he shows up for the first time after Rita's death, because he's actually grieving a little bit as part of the you know, human process. He was shut down for a while, and then he beats him out of death with a very sharp anchor, and he begins to feel emotion. But yeah, it was... So the look on his face when he was doing it was just superb acting on the part of Michael C. Hall. Yeah, I feel, honestly, to me, that is one of the best episodes in the show's history. And everything after that very episode, because that that was the first episode of season five. And it's generally accepted that season five is when things start going downhill. Everything after that, I feel this, this episode, that particular scene, is a really highlight of the show, but it's also sort of like a turning point. However, to stick with our topic, you know, part of why that scene is so powerful is that, as you just mentioned, it shows emotions. You know, he killed out of anger, which is something generally not associated with psychopath. And more than that, they they even did it in a way that make you feel sorry for the guy. Not the guy who died, but the guy who killed. It's almost like, you know... It's it's really I thought that whole scene was so powerful but also genius. The way it was written, the way as you mentioned, the acting was superb. But and then his father obviously or his you know, his projection of his father shows up and tells him, I'm proud of you because he finally was able to show emotions after his wife's death. So and I really think it's it's truly fascinating how each kill is driven and motivated differently. Uh Obviously, for the most part, as we mentioned, we, he does have an urge to kill, but it's they really they they manage to separate some kills. For instance, um, early in the first episode of season seven, where after his sister catches him at the end of season uh, six, and finally, you know, essentially he's caught in the act, killing the Duse killer in the church. Um, Dexter. A bit dubiously, I might say, but in order to escape all of this, uh, flies down to the airport. Not flies down, he drives down to the airport to kill a guy because it's his only way to deal with stress. Now, you know, watching the show, it might sound a bit absurd, but that's not, I mean, obviously the way it was done, it was, I mean, kind of unrealistic and over the top, but hey, that's, that's Dexter for you. But it's not really unrealistic in the sense that you're not, it's, it's inaccurate to think that, oh, he's so stupid, why would he kill now? Because take a look at Ted Bundy in real life, for example. Right after he escaped prison for the first time, he, he went on the biggest killing spree of his life while essentially he was the most wanted man in the country. Because when they lose control, that's their way of dealing with things. Um, psychopath, that is, serial killers. And that's what Dexter did after his wife died. That's what he did after his sister saw him. So I think while obviously they do everything in a Hollywood-esque way, um, the core idea of what drives him is not that unrealistic, I don't think. Um, it's not, he's not this morally driven uh, serial killer at all. But, you know, he lives by a code that he breaks. And at the end of the day, I think when you think about it, you know, going back to the whole villain aspect of Dexter, is that he is an incredibly selfish human being. 
incredibly selfish. And the way, I find the way he justifies killing to be, I mean, it's highly arbitrary. At, at times it's the code, other times it isn't. And more than anything else, I mean, it's not justice because in pretty much every single episode of every single season, he solves a murder before the police does, but really does not report it so he could actually get the chance to kill. And I think one of the most famous Dexter villains would be the Ice Truck Killer and how Dexter was enjoying the, the thrill. It's not like he was not appalled by by whatever this man is doing until obviously until later in the season where he start you know where things start uh, coming out. But initially, he almost he respected him. He liked him, and that was a horrible man who was killing innocent people. So I feel how he looks at different killers arbitrarily or different murders arbitrarily is really part of what makes the character so fascinating, but also what makes him a true villain deep down inside, in our traditional sense of the word, is that at the end of the day, this is a despicable human being. Yeah, I mean, he kills people because he feels he needs to kill people. He's driven by the urge to kill people, and he just has a brief sense. He has some guidelines that make it difficult for people to catch him. I mean, more than once, I mean, for one of the ones that I go back to frequently when I think about this, and you mentioned his selfishness, and most, my understanding is most sociopaths and psychopaths view the world as revolving around them because no one else is necessarily real. I mean, I know there's a bunch of different psycho, you know, psychopathies going on within, you know, sociopath or psychopath or, you know, someone who thinks no one else is real but them, but it all kind of jumbles together for the purposes of a, of a discussion like this, at least. And I think it's the beginning of season four when he falsifies data, gives a horrible testimony in court, simply basically lets this man go free just so he can find him and then kill him later. And then he falls asleep at the wheel because he's sleep-deprived due to the new baby being home and working all the time. He's basically got life that has kind of smacked him over the head. He's married now, and there's a kid, and stressed, and he's tired all the time, but he still finds time to let this murderer walk free, then chain him up, you know, then take him to a boxing ring, stab him in the chest, dismember him, stick him in his car, then drive too fast while he's drowsy, flip the car several times, and you know, I mean, it, it, it's a small miracle there was no one else on that road, just in terms of the storyline, because that... That was the type of accident that kills people, and he managed to, you know, not, and he managed to not be seriously injured in it, but it's just, he doesn't care much, I mean, it it ruins that detective's career, I think it's Quinn, uh, it's been a while since I've seen that particular episode, but that detective's case is ruined, the, I mean, when you look at how that affects everyone else, the prosecutor's uh, conviction rate goes down, a murderer walks free, this detective now has to deal with figuring out how things went wrong, and yeah, it's easy to point at him, but it affects everyone else around him, and he rather blithely screws up their plans and what they're trying to do, just because he hasn't killed anyone in a couple of months, and he desperately... Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm like you, I haven't seen that season in a while. I don't remember whether he deliberately 
falsified the statement in court, or he just happened to bring the wrong file because he wasn't getting oh, no, he did sleep it to his newborn son. I remember okay. that he did it intentionally. Um, okay, that's honestly not how I remember it, but that is really, I mean, neither here nor there. He but, plays uh, it off. I mean, he plays I, it off to everyone else like, I'm just really tired, and you know, I just made an honest mistake, but when you, his internal monologue reveals that he did it on purpose because he had planned beforehand to do that, so he knew who he was going to get off he knew where he was going to take them to kill them and everything beforehand oh right okay and that was i think that was that entire season i mean it's highly it's generally regarded as the best i i consider it the best of the entire series but that entire season in addition to you know john lesko's terrific performance as the trinity killer and the trinity killer himself being such a greatly written character sticking with dexter himself here for a second that season was it it, it's a huge turning point in Dexter, the person even before his wife actually dies. You know, now now he's suddenly a man with a newborn child, and the whole this is where when they really start showing the complications of the dual life, because and I think that was the dual life aspect, especially with the family, was a constant theme throughout because. Initially, when he says, I want to learn from the Trinity Killer, that's really what he, he had intended. Like, how could this guy really be able to kind of sit at the wheel of two completely different lives? One revolving around murder and, you know, him being the Trinity Killer, and the other being building a family with a wife and two kids, I think it was. So, mm-hmm. and that's something that it's not, again, most serial killers are loners, but um, that season is highly based on the BTK killer, and he, part of the reason why he was such a unique case, he being the BTK killer in real life, is that this is a man who killed across decades, like the Trinity killer himself, and was only caught, I think his first murder was in 1976, and he was caught in 2004. Like, that's, you know, that's a huge time span. And when I actually have the a book had... in that same vein. I, my dad and my stepmom, both of whom have kind of similar tastes to me, or they understand my taste. So I, I'm kind of like you. I'm fascinated by the odd and the dark, hence a podcast like this. But they got me a book of unsolved uh, cases and some generally murders. It's a, it's a fascinating read. I've read it a couple of times, but that particular book was published prior to James Rader, the BTK killer, being caught and convicted. And it didn't come out that long ago. I mean, the guy was, he went dormant for a long time, and there was a bunch of speculation about, you know, maybe he's in jail on an unrelated charge or something. But, yeah, he was successful in terms of being a serial killer for a really long time across the, I mean, there were the other example of, you know, intelligent serial killers who haven't been caught, you know, the Zodiac killer to this day has not definitively been identified. Right. And part of the reason why the BTK killer is so fascinating, I mean, he did end up getting caught rather foolishly by sending a floppy disk to the cops that they were easily able to trace right after asking the police um, if it's if it's able to be traced, and they just said no, and he, he took their word for it. I mean, this is how arrogant he grew by taunting the police, that he just he really felt so much in charge that they, he just took their word for it, which was foolish. But the reason why he was able to not get caught for so long, and this is why the case of the BTK killer is so fascinating, is that the man, for somebody who killed throughout four different decades, or at least was on the loose throughout four different decades, 
He really did not kill that often. Unlike many serial killers, he was able to control his urges and his compulsions. I think on the whole he committed, like, help me out here, what was it, nine murders? Maybe. Give me a second, I'll find I mean, out. I'm sure it was more than nine people that died, but I think, I, don't, I doubt there were more than nine different murders, which is not a substantial amount for somebody, again, who killed... Ten. On ten, ten murders. People. All right. Oh, ten people. Well, oh, ten people. Okay, so, I mean, he, he was able to control his urges. In fact, after they caught him, they found drawings of... I mean, the man was obsessed with bondage in general. Uh, BTK stands for bind, torture, kill, uh, for those who don't know. So anyway, no, the Dennis man Rader, was able James to control... Rader, I apologize. Oh, yeah, I did correct you uh, while you were speaking. Anyway, oh, um, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, so the man was able to, quote-unquote, get off on pictures. He would, like, uh, clip different photos from magazines and draw bondage around a woman's neck or, or hands or wrists. I mean, that's how he was able to control his urges. More than that, he would actually bind himself and take pictures of, of himself in a grave. I mean, obviously, this is a twisted, twisted man. But the point is, because of his family life, tying that back to Dexter and season four of Dexter, because of his family life, this was not somebody who could go out every night and kill. So, I mean, that that fourth season, that's what, what was so great about it, is that, yeah, I mean, ever since season one, there was the whole duality of us. Dexter trying to mask his real identity, but at least he was living alone in his own apartment. So things were different. But all of a sudden now, he's got this family, he lives in a house. He, it's not, he can't go out and kill every night. He has to be extra careful. He has to choose his targets more carefully. So, I mean, again, the show, even if it might seem at times like, you know, your typical unrealistic plot, it, it is... Obviously it is, but it's based on so many, or at least inspired by so many real-life events. I mean, th this is the life of a serial killer in many ways. Uh, yeah, as close as we're going to get to seeing it portrayed, as far as I know, unless some unscrupulous network executive decides to do a reality show around someone, which, you know, might not be as far off as we'd all like to think. But, you know, uh, Dexter himself... Let's hope not. Let's hope not, yeah. Uh, Dexter himself is a very fascinating character. Like you said, one of the greatest in television history. Michael C. Hall's performance, hands down, one of the best from television in the last couple of decades. I mean, for me, the big, you know, four or five acting performances from the last 10, 20 years are uh, James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano... Brian Cranston as Walter White, Vic Mac, er, Michael Chiklis as Vic Mackey, uh, dang it, I keep forgetting, Katie Segal as uh, Jim Telemaro, and Michael C. Hall from Dexter. I mean, you've got such a hugely talented group of people there, and he absolutely deserves to be in there. But like you mentioned, they tend to, for those of you unfamiliar with the series, they tend to structure each season with Dexter squaring off with an opponent of some kind, whether it's another... They usually have another serial killer that he is opposite against, but that's not always the primary antagonist. I mean, in season three, there's the guy who skins people, but really the whole show is about him and Jimmy Smith, which produced some of the best right. interaction. I've, I still, to this day, love the interactions between those two on the golf course. It, it stands oh, as one of my favorite absolutely. television of all time. Please tell me but, you actually love that season and agree that, just a quick um 
tangent here. Please tell me that you agree that it's a very underrated season and gets undeserved fuck. I absolutely think that is. I love the, not just the interactions between Jimmy Smith and, oh, what was his character's name? Miguel something. Miguel Prado. Prado, yes. But the interactions between Miguel and Dexter are just awesome. I mean, I get such a kick out of watching those two play off of each other. And Are there some other holes in it? I mean, it gets some flack because you have the Skinner as, again, the you know the other killer that Dexter's kind of after, but and he's a weaker version. But make, you know, I think that's people missing the point. Really, Jimmy Smith is the guy opposing Dexter throughout almost all of that. I mean, right, when I he think takes, the main problem. I mean, for people, I think the problem is that he kills Miguel Prado in the penultimate episode, and then he kills the Skinner in the last one. While for everyone, you know, as you mentioned. Miguel Prado was the main story, so it kind of felt the ending was a bit anticlimactic, especially that for much of the season, the Skinner was really Deborah's opponent, so to speak, more than Dexter. Dexter was not all that interested in him. He was interested in talking with Miguel, whereas the, now the police were looking for the Skinner, but Dexter himself had very little interest in it, apart from the fact that the Skinner tried to kill him at the end, and that didn't work out too well for him. But uh, trying to kill Dexter never seems to work out well for any. But no, I, I very much <laughs> like the... I prefer the third season to the second, to be perfectly honest, but I, I freely admit that's also just my personal opinion. I really like the third season a lot. I mean, again, just the interactions between Dexter and Miguel are just... For my money, they're gold, whether they're, un, whether they're humorous or serious. I mean, when Dexter comes out from killing that drug dealer who everyone thinks killed Miguel's brother. It was actually Dexter. But when he comes out and he says, no, I killed him, he came at me, and Miguel says, you know, thank you for killing him. He deserved it. I was going to do it. I'll take care of this for you. Let me go see it. And, De- and at that point, Dexter says, no, no, you can't see the fact that I very carefully coated the room in plastic so that you know, there's no blood spatter evidence and I'm, I have a kill suit so that there's no evidence on me. No, no, just go ahead. You know, I can clean up. And he's, I'll take care of the rest of this. You know, thank you. And just... I mean the fact that you know, they have the dramatic device of being of talking in the rain at the same time, but just the interactions between those two, for my money, are just gold. Some of the best interactive television I've almost ever seen. I mean, you you get great interactions with different characters in different shows, but the way those two, you have two quality actors with two well-written characters, they get to play off of each other, and it's an absolute joy for me to watch personally. Yeah, the rooftop discussion towards the end was also phenomenal when they. When towards the end, when they actually meet on the rooftop of the police station, uh, Miguel is actually framing him so that the Skinner gets a good look at him, and uh, they have this uh, back and forth, or, or back and forth, where Miguel's super pissed off because um, remember he had originally given him a shirt with the blood stain that ties him to the Freebo. I think that was his name. Yeah, that ties him to the Freebo yeah, murder, and turns out it's not real; it's um, animal blood. Yeah, it was cow's blood and, or something. And Dexter, yeah, it's Cal's butt. And Dexter actually breaks into Miguel's house, or maybe he doesn't break, he, he just knocks and the maid lets him in or something like that. And I don't know, it's not he sends him a message through leaving something. Um, I think it was like the dry cleaning number, so Miguel Torres goes, uh, not Torres, God, <laughs> Miguel Prado goes there and um, finds his shirt. And so obviously he's super pissed, so they... He goes to the police station and he demands that Dexter meets him up on the rooftop. And there they have like this intense discussion where that really leads up. It's almost like in pro wrestling terms, almost like the promo uh, leading up to the go home paper. So, you know, 
and it was Jimmy Smith's performance in particular, as you alluded to, was terrific. And those two had such great chemistry. That scene is on YouTube um, for everybody. You can check it out. It's um, in case you really don't remember the details. But it was. I thought it was a phenomenal scene. Really, one of the highest points of the season. I get a kick out of that. And when he takes. When he he can't he's kind of tutoring Miguel on the ways of how to kill people and get away with it, and he can't he he decides he can't tell him how he really gets rid of bodies because then he'd realize oh wait you're the Bay Harbor Butcher which a rather sensationalist name but that's what everyone knows the serial killer Dexter is that's what they know him as so he tells him that no what I do is I break into graveyards at night and right. I find yeah, a graveyard it is it's a great well first of all it's a great way to hide a body. You break. He goes into a graveyard, dumps a body in an open grave, covers it with a few inches of earth, and the next day a casket is lowered onto it, and no one's the wise. And as he's explaining that to him, I mean, it's very similar to a scene from the movie, I want to say Mr. Parker, but that last name might be wrong. It's a Kevin Costner movie where Kevin Costner plays a serial killer. And oh, he... right, Mr. Hold on. No, it's, not, it's definitely not Mr. I think it's with an S, Mr. Though not Smith. And I know that it's it's a great movie, actually. But, I know. Yeah, I, no, I, I was really impressed with it. Go on. I'll, look it I'll just Google it. I got it. Right. I got it. But where'd it go? All right. Well, I'll, I'll okay, yeah, here, keep going. I'll find it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think what you're what you're referring to in, in season Brooks. three is when Mr. that Brooks. Uh, Mr. Brooks. That's what it is, actually. Yeah. You're referring to the scene where Miguel actually does kill somebody. I mean, the um, he kills the defense. I, I think who, who is she? Yeah, the defense, like the lawyer defense attorney. Right. Yeah, and buries her um, in the graveyard because. That's what Dexter, quote-unquote, taught him, even though he wasn't. It was just a camouflage to conceal his real identity. So Dexter, in his attempt to look for the body, remembers what he had taught Miguel. So to taunt him, he actually digs up the body. Obviously, we're, this is the unrealistic part because he, he goes unseen. But, hey, I mean, that's what makes it such great TV. He digs up the body. Um, out in the open for everybody to see, and it gets reported. And then they have to examine the scene. And Miguel Prado goes there. I, I thought that was, I mean, that, that yeah, you're absolutely correct about that, that particular piece of interaction. But the discussion they have right after that is also amazing. Yeah, absolutely. But we do want to talk about some of the other, you know, we just talked about uh, Miguel Prado. Uh, and we, we should talk about the first one, his, uh, okay, we already mentioned there's going to be spoilers in this, but uh, Brian Moser, the ice truck killer from the first season, had some really, it was a really interesting character, especially since in the first season they were very heavy on kind of the mystery of it. So you get introduced to Brian Moser's pseudo-life. He killed a doctor who specialized in creating prosthetic limbs and assumed his life so that he could get closer to Dexter because he knows that Dexter is his brother. Dexter has no memory of this at the time. And some of the interactions between those two are... Especially for the first season of a show, they're really good stuff. I mean, do you have any favorite, you know, favorite memories from that? Or I mean, yeah, absolutely. that's one of my. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I'll uh, if you go on, but I'll I'll mention that in a second. I was just gonna say, you know, that was kind of a high mark. I mean, I loved the interaction between Jimmy Smith and Dexter, but in terms of having an opponent who could kind of match Dexter in terms of no way he might actually kill him or. He might get the better of him. I didn't feel that way about Dokes or I think it was Lila was the girl he was with in season two. Oh yeah, the, the psycho, the psycho bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't 
feel that he was ever, you know, in any kind of real threat from any of the interim killers between Brian Mosier and Trinity, uh, John Lithgow. And then I haven't felt that he's been in much danger since, but that's a different story. Right. As you mentioned, the show's formula in general, uh, there are exceptions, but in general it's that every season has one main villain that Dexter is after throughout the whole season, and the rest is sort of like filler. There are subplots, obviously, and there are other people that Dexter kills, you know, in other episodes, but there's a main villain. In season one, as you mentioned, it's the Ice Strip Killer. Again, this is going to be spoiler-heavy, but you're not aware of that right away. As you mentioned, the cool thing about, the great thing about the first season is the mystery. We don't know, I mean, slowly but surely we're we're introduced to Dexter, his background, we find out more about his past, stuff that he doesn't even remember because he was, you know, he was taken um, from a murder scene at two or maybe he was two years old, I think, by his um, future foster father. So, Turns out this is you know you know this is we're really jumping right here, but turns out that murder scene was his mother getting killed, and he had a brother in there with him, and that brother turns out to be the ice killer who does remember, and in his quest to find Dexter to find his brother out of love, not not for for, for any malicious uh, intent, he finds out that Dexter is also a serial killer, and this is where the um the challenge begins. He starts you know. He, he sends him cryptic serial killer messages, and it's really amazing. My favorite piece of interactions between the two are the undirect interactions, meaning before they actually met and before he later found out who he really is. My favorite episode of Dexter ever is actually, I think it's the ninth or tenth episode, my, probably the ninth episode of the first season called Seeing Red. Um, that's my favorite episode ever where he he, he kind of assembles all the blood, uh, the ice killer assembles all the blood from all the victims he's killed and just dumps them in one room without anything else, no bodies, no nothing. It's just nothing but blood. And Dexter, who throughout the first season, keep in mind this is the first season, so we haven't seen him really vulnerable at any point. Throughout the first season has been... You know, he always has this passion for blood. He, they almost make you feel like he enjoys murder scenes. Obviously, he's a serial killer, so he's not really freaked out. He's not emotionally moved ever by anything. In fact, one of the most common themes of the first season that he always makes sure he mentions is that the fact that he has no feelings. But all of a sudden, he walks into this hotel room and sees just blood all over, and he faints. And because it gives him a flashback. Now, as we later find out, you know, and, and one of the most powerful scenes of the entire series, towards the end of that episode, the very last scene, Dexter finally decides to walk back into that room and just because he, he had flashbacks of a little boy crying while covered in blood once he saw that scene in, in the room. So he finally goes back there, and he wants to figure out what happens. So, and it really... Like all the memories get back to him, and he sees he remembers his mother getting slaughtered with a chainsaw in front of him. Um, he doesn't remember his brother in that particular um, flashback, but and he he remember, he finds out that this boy is actually him, and that's his mother getting killed right in front of him. So his brother actually just repainted that scene for him. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. To me, that's that's still. Season one is not my favorite season, but that was definitely my favorite episode. And 
it's really I feel the episode where they went they took Dexter the series and Dexter the character from this fun show uh, this confident smart guy likable guy into okay you know it's almost like oh now it's on you know, suddenly you had real emotional investment in the show. Suddenly, for the first time, as you mentioned, you feel vulnerability. And you feel like, okay, this guy, whoever this is, is a threat. Because clearly he knows a thing or two about Dexter. And he all, he knows how to hit him where it hurts. So it's, um, I thought that was, again, as I mentioned, that's probably my favorite part of the entire show. Yeah, uh, just for the record, he was three when he when that particular incident happened and it is episode 10 seeing red from season and you okay, well, yeah, I you agree go. they have those do have some fun you like like you said non interactions mm-hmm. because um Brian Moser going by the alias um Rudy Dr. Rudy I forget the last name have these because he's dating Deborah at the uh, Deborah Morgan Dexter's adopted sister at the time and they have these odd little non interactions I mean when Dexter's trying to recreate the blood spatter spray from that hotel room that was just, you know, again, this something out of a horror movie, but, you know, I, I, this series is based more or less in real life, so you have to imagine walking into something that you would only see in a really gory horror movie, and he's trying to recreate the blood spatter pattern, and he's got all these various power tools that are that he's using to try and recreate it, and he can't quite get it right, and he's going through, which is what blood spatter guys do, and he's going through his list of tools, and uh, Brian walks in, and he says, so, you know, well, what are you doing, and Dexter explains it, and well, this one doesn't have the right, you know, this one's rotational angle is too small, this one doesn't have enough power, they're fast. And he just says, well, you know, I work with amputees a lot, and I've heard a lot of horror stories, so have you considered maybe a chainsaw? And Dexter kind of brushes him off at the moment, but a bit later he's like, no, wait, that actually works. You have an electric chainsaw, you use an extension cord from out here, and that'll spread it around right. And they just have these really fun interactions between the two of them. I was actually happy when they brought him back in the last season as a new hallucination for Dexter. Or his mental projection, however you choose to phrase it. Yeah, I think, yeah, wasn't that in season five or something? I think it was the last season, the, the current one. The current. I mean, he comes back a little this bit here and there in other ones. He's at the beginning of season the- two. He- Pops up briefly. Right, but there was definitely an episode that was almost completely revolved around him. I think it was in in season five where Dexter goes somewhere out of town to find Trinity's son um, because uh, Trinity's daughter was killed and he suspects that his son had uh, had killed her. So he goes there and... I think that's in season five. I'm sorry? I think what you're referencing yeah, is season and, five. Yeah, that's. I think it is, it is season five, and right. And and Dexter was having problems with his projection of Harry. I know it sounds ridiculous, so it gets replaced by a projection of Brian. But I don't remember him actually being um, popping back up for, in any other season. I mean, I'm probably wrong, but I just don't recall. It's not five. I think it's. I don't know. I know he's in this. The latest season, season eight. He appeared in the last one briefly in one of these last few episodes encouraging Dexter to kill uh, Dr. Vogel but again but yeah it, oh, okay. I'm happy whenever they I'm happy whenever they get those two back on screen together even for a brief time because they had such an interesting dynamic but moving on to yeah you know, I, oh, go ahead go ahead, make your point. no no it's one last point about you know one thing about the ice chuckle and what was so great about that is he genuinely loved Dexter and his whole thing was actually just a way to reunite with him so in the end, when Dexter does kill him, 
um, it, it had a strong effect on Dexter himself, and they show you that in the beginning of season two, where he's he's a bit rusty, he's unable to kill immediately because you know uh, his, him killing his brother still haunts him. Because not only, I mean, you know, it's he had just met him, true, but suddenly he had somebody he, he could relate to, somebody who knows who he really is, and not just. Uh, knows that, but accepts him and loves him for it. And that's actually a recurring theme throughout Dexter, where he's searching for somebody who really accepts him for who he is and loves him for that, which is why, you know, he's currently in love with um, Hannah McKay with the personality of a broomstick. Yeah, and, you know, when they killed Rita, they took away such a great romantic interest for Dexter. I mean, just because she was... I mean, the character of Rita was such an interesting one, she came from that horribly abusive background, and but she had developed. He loved Dexter, and she but she had also developed a spine so that when he was, if he was you know deceiving her, she didn't know about what obviously, but she got to the point where she wasn't taking his crap, and he actually like, reacted to the way she would talk, the way she would respond to him. If if she thought he was lying, she'd call him on him and. He'd have, you get some great marital drama between the two. I mean, you, if you replace him being a serial killer with him cheating on her or with it, you know, doing any number of other things that can cause a rift in a marriage, you get some. You still have some of the best intermarital dialogue that those two gave each other. Like him being a drug addict, which I think they did in season two, where he thought she, uh, she thought he was a drug addict. Yeah. Yeah, that he went and to. Yeah, and, okay. yeah, and because he couldn't tell her, oh no, I'm not a drug addict. I just kill people. <laughs> he had to admit it, which is, I mean, it, it has a bit of dark humor in it as well. Yeah, a lot of these shows that we've been talking about lately have, you get this odd kind of. What you get are just like comedies of errors, where laughing is not necessarily the you know appropriate response, but it's the only thing you can do given the circumstance. Right. I mean, I, the one that I go back to in uh, Breaking Bad. I, forget, I think it was the last season four was you have the two associates of Saul's who were trying to get uh, the guy Skyler was sleeping with to pay the to pay off the IRS with the money that stole from Walt to give to him and he doesn't want to do it so these two associates under explicit orders not to harm him in any way they're intimidating him into paying off the IRS he tries to run away from them he trips over an area rug and slides headfirst into the island in his kitchen, and it breaks his neck. He doesn't die, but paralyzed from that point. And I saw that, and I laughed. And it's not appropriate because, you know, here's a, you know, theoretically, here's a real person who just, I thought he was dead at first, and that, that was my honest initial response. And, like, you know, it's not funny, but that, you know, it's an act of God type thing. You can't help but laugh. It's the only response that comes to mind. Like when Dexter hits Rita's uh, ex-husband with a frying pan over the head. I laughed. Yeah. I genuinely laughed. I, I, I thought, I mean, that I, was, I, I honestly thought that was hilarious. Yeah, here's this guy who kills people as if, you know, like the rest of us shop for gross. And he doesn't kill him, but he loses control and whacks him over the head with a frying pan. <laughs> that was in season two, right, which is what we're about to discuss. I think I thought what's really interesting in season two is that they went with something. After I watched season one, I knew that there would come a time where Dexter would become the one haunted by the cops, even if they don't know it's actually Dexter, so he's investigating his own crimes. I really didn't suspect that they pulled the trigger on it that early into the show's lifetime. Yeah, it was it was a little interesting, but you know the relationship between Dexter and Dokes, I thought 
as far as just being antagonistic towards each other, here's a guy who, according to the code that Dexter kills by, can't, he can't kill Dokes because he's not a bad guy. But at the same time, he's just desperately trying to be rid of him because he's figuring out who Dexter is. And there, right. and there was conflict between the most two, uh, the, the first two rules that Harry taught him, which is don't get caught and don't kill innocent. Well, if he doesn't kill this innocent person, he's gonna get caught because he, you know, he's on to him. So that was. I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, but we need to—we absolutely need to devote at least some time. We've—we've we've mentioned him before, but John Lithgow's performance as the Trinity Killer in season four uh, was just the way I was sold when he, at, during some of his facial expressions. I think the first time we see him kill someone, when he beats this, that poor security guard to death with a hammer, and he's wearing a—I mean, he's wearing a full uh, like hazmat suit type getup, so that there's no evidence on him, but. He's sitting here beating this guy to death with a hammer, and he's sobbing. It's almost like he has no control over himself, and he doesn't actually want to do this, but he has no other choice. Yeah, that was actually the second time we see him kill somebody. The first time, it's in the very first scene of the entire season where he's in the bathroom naked. Oh, that, yeah, That was yeah, a great yeah. sight. But, but that's, that was a very strong opening scene for that season. I mean, season three, you know, we just mentioned we both loved it, but... As far as emotional impact, it didn't seem to have much. It was highly enjoyable. We just talked about that. But even, like, Dexter and Miguel's interactions were fun more than anything else. The Skinner, you know, was kind of underwhelming. So the crimes he was... It was never affecting people you really cared about right until he squared off with Dexter towards the end. But then here it is in season four okay, there's this random girl, you don't know who she is, and this random old man, you don't know who he is. But immediately with um, the score, I thought the music they played for the Trinity was really quite, it had a lasting effect. I feel it was, it was really fitting. Um, it reminds me a bit of Hans Zimmer's theme for the Joker in The Dark Knight. Um, I don't know why, but it, it's kind of, it had that same effect. Um him you killing that you know woman in the bathtub. Right, exactly. Um, and it's not exactly musical. You can't hum it in your hand or something. So that's, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like atonal just kind of sound that just slowly gets louder and louder and louder as time goes right. on. Right. And it's it's incredibly menacing. And right off the bat, you know that, okay, and this dude is... You know, it's bad news. And unlike previous seasons, and this is what, what, why it's so great, there isn't mystery. Um, you, you, you see the killer committing the act. You see his face, unlike any of the previous seasons. So I thought that was interesting. Obviously, as we start finding more, uh, we start finding out more about him throughout the season. Yeah, sure. But you immediately see him, and you see him committing the crime. And that was really strong, and it set the tone for what was in my opinion, the best season of the show. I mean, as you just mentioned, John Lithgow's performance was terrific. Initially, you know, him, not just as a serial killer, but as the man. As a serial killer, the crime you mentioned where, um, yeah, he was bludgeoning somebody, I think it was with a hammer. Um, yeah, the security guard. And he's really... It's and almost he like talks he's crying. And, and yeah, oh yeah, that that was so... I mean, that was, that scene, and that dragged, which is, I, they really took their time with that. Um, in fact, all three of his, because, you know, the reason why he's called Trinity, for those who don't know, but he kills in threes, and that's his M.O. He bludgeons a man, he, a woman 
uh, gets shoved off a ledge. He actually doesn't shove her. He forces her to jump by threatening to kill her family. So she has to jump because his mother committed suicide when he was young by jumping. And his sister died by accident in the bathtub. So that's why he kills a woman in a bathtub, too. So, it, I mean, it's it's such a strong story. It's believable. It is it, it, at least convincing. It's, I don't want to say believable, maybe, but it's definitely convincing, like his his motivation behind it. And more than that, when you initially see him as this, or as Dexter sees him as this perfect family man with the perfect American family, but... You know, there's that great, it's probably my, my other favorite scene of the entire show, that Thanksgiving um, dinner they're having, when really he show, he reveals his true side, uh, and Dexter loses it and almost chokes him with his belt. I mean, that's some super strong stuff. And talk about, you know, great interactions. That season was filled with them. Um, Dexter, I think he, he just takes an alias, Kyle something, and he approaches Trinity. That's, yeah, Kyle Butler. And from there, it was absolutely amazing. Every single, I mean, at first, he, it was almost like um, this man, <laughs> Trinity Killer, has become his mentor, Kyle Butler's mentor. But in, in, uh, it's all an actor, but uh, deep down inside, Dexter is actually learning or wants to learn from him in order to, be, to find out how to maintain his family and takes from him advice as to how to get his kids um, or his stepkids in that um, in that situation to find interest or something like soccer or ballet. I don't remember what it was, but it was really terrific stuff. That season was so robust with... Um, it, I think it did a terrific job at focusing on the main story, first and foremost. The cops were looking for the Trinity. Dexter was knew who the Trinity is. Um, so it really... There weren't many... Um, distracting subplots or anything and it all revolved around this man the trinity killer and as a result it's really not surprising that most regard him as um, the greatest dexter villain because he's the most fleshed out dexter villain as well i mean you know he's the one you see the most because they they showed him from that initial moment of the season, so which allowed some character development. I mean, in some ways, you feel sorry for him. At one point, he wanted to commit suicide only to be saved by Dexter so he could be later killed by Dexter. I mean, and that was the paradox there was, was really interesting as well. So they really show you all sides of this man while also showing you all different sides of Dexter as well. I mean, and obviously... The the finale was was really I mean breathtaking in a sad way. Yeah, the scene, to me the scene of Dexter seeing his son Harrison in his in a pool of his mother's blood and that image kind of flashing between that one and his memory of him being in a pool of his mother's blood and seeing the police officer carry his son out of the room and again it's flashing between that and him remembering. Harry carrying him out of the cargo container just absolutely floored me the first time I watched it. Just, just this, like, uh, it, uh, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. It's just this, like, this great tragedy that it's just... It's chilling. 
It is. It's absolutely haunting. The way they went about that, too, is because they were playing that uplifting beat towards the end as he's calling his wife, telling her that he'd be joining her on vacation right after he gets done killing the Trinity Killer. And remember then when he was killing him, the Trinity Killer says, it's all done. It's over now, or it's all it's done already. It's done. Something along those lines. Something. It's already yeah, something done. Something that he had said. Yeah, and he he had said that, and you immediately, you immediately shrug it off because that's what he had told the girl he killed at the very beginning of the season. So you think it's just something he says before killing somebody, but you know you have suspicions, but at the same time you don't want to believe it. And they're just playing that uplifting music towards the end that they usually do, and you think, well, you know that's the usual. You know he's he's just going to join his wife on vacation and get over their marital problems, and he calls her cell phone. He hears the, the I think I think she had left him a voice message or something. Then he calls her on her cell phone. She was supposedly out of out of town, and it rings in his house, and that's where he enters the bathroom. And as you mentioned, sees his son lying in a pool of blood. I mean, that was really, really that that whole ending sequence was absolutely fantastic. I mean, th- there was no better way. I mean. It, it's sad, definitely. It's chilling, it's haunting, but there was no better way to end that season. And, you know, it's uh, on one hand, it's expected that the show would go downhill from there because there was no way you could ever top that. Yeah, I mean, there are certain times in certain seasons and different television series that, you know, okay, this is a high point. You know, it's going to go downhill. It's just kind of inevitable. I mean, any number of television series you could point to, it's just sad when it doesn't at least come back up a little bit or you know rebound a bit after you know you go from great to okay well it's not as great and then the sad thing with Dexter is for my money at least it's just kind of kept going downhill since then instead of rebounding up right. a little bit right i i mean the whole season 5 didn't work for me i i i get what they were trying to do it didn't work for me as you mentioned, you know, the theme here on the show is a villain, and for Dexter to work, he needs a threatening villain. And I don't, uh, after the Trinity Killer, there was never that. I don't think in any season was there ever a really threatening villain. I mean, season five, there was this motivational speaker dude, uh, Jordan something. Um, I mean, the people that had gang raped Julia Stiles. Right. I mean, it's it's not a bad season, per se. It just I don't think it worked. I don't think people really uh, were able to have any sort of emotional uh, investment in Julia Stiles' character. But more than that, the the villain himself was really not all that threatening. Not to Dexter, at least. I mean, he was this cowardly man who he didn't even rape girls. He watched as his accomplices raped girls. So it was, I mean... It was strong for sure, but as far as Dexter, the person himself, there was never a threat on him. So that didn't work. And then, you know, the Doomsday Killer and the season after that, I mean... Well, the only yeah, threat as you the mentioned, Doomsday Killer had was he kidnapped Harrison at the end. And that, for my money watching that, it almost seemed like a desperate ploy. Like, like a desperate ploy. Like, no, no, he, really, we mean yes. business with this guy. See, look, he'll kidnap Dexter. Exactly. I mean, honestly, yes, I was never able to take that scene seriously. I mean, obviously, deep down inside, you, you knew, I mean, even if, even if a Trinity killer had taken Harrison, you knew Harrison wouldn't have died. But at least it's sort of like, you know, there's always doubt that, okay, what is going to happen? In that, as you said, because they had done such a poor job building up to that moment, when that moment had happened, it was 
A, kind of out of nowhere, and B, even when it didn't happen, it, it, it really failed to have the effect it should have, I think. So, the Doomsday Killer, I thought initially when um, the old man was, before we found out that, I mean, you do see it coming. If you've seen Fight Club and pretty much every other movie who's done that before, you do see it coming and you see the signs coming. But at least he was, he seemed to be far more menacing than the younger man who actually does turn out to be the Doomsday Killer. Uh, the actor's name is actually completely eclipsed. Uh, it was a real shame that they wound up going that direction with it because he, you know, the professor, the doctor that was supposed to be the bad, that was theoretically the bad guy, turns out to set a hallucination, a fractured part of his mind. Just he was so much, he was such a better villain. Just the way he had menace and the way he would talk about it was just. Uh, Colin Hanks is the actor who played uh, Travis Marshall, the Doomsday Killer. Right, it was Colin. But yeah, when they when they went that way, it was just, you went. It was almost like I'm trying to think of maybe a pro wrestling reference here. You've built up to a you've built up to like Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan, but instead of Andre the Giant, out comes Big John Stuck or uh, right. Santino, and, <laughs> as the case may be. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's almost like. <sighs> It's almost like when Vince McMahon turns out to be the evil force controlling the Undertaker. It was the Yeah, Exactly. And, and, or like Rikishi being the dude who ran over Austin, for example. And the sure, he, <laughs> that promo is amazing. Uh, but instead of... Or uh, oh, like, Hornswoggle as Vince McMahon's illegitimate son. Right. So and, and instead of like... Steve Austin eventually squaring off with Triple H and that like three stages of hell match, the whole feud, Triple H just disappears and the whole feud turns out to be with Rikishi. Like imagine if right before that three, uh, three stages of hell match, Triple H doesn't show up and Rikishi comes out and he's like, no, it was all me from the beginning. It was all my idea. It's hard to get, because you're just not going to buy that. I mean, it, it's hard really to get behind that at all. So that completely kind of ruined the season, really. I mean, it was a bit, the whole season was a bit overly theatric and over the top, but I was fine with that. I mean, I was fine with the religion subplot and everything, but and and I think I would have remembered it killer, So there's going to be more theatricality just kind of by the nature right. of how that goes. Absolutely. So I, I, am, I am willing to accept that. I'm willing to accept that he was able to paint Dexter's face on the devil in like two hours when that would really take weeks. But hey, yeah. that's fine, honestly. But We'll suspend a little disbelief here. Yeah, I mean, that's, you have to do that when you're watching Dexter. And, and I think Michael C. Hall himself said it. He said, I mean, this guy killed his, bro- his brother in his brother's apartment with no police surveilling there or anything. I mean, he went into a crime scene and killed him without being seen. So it's not like it's not like the show doesn't realize its own uh, I don't want to call it, you know, plot holes, but yeah, sure. But the problem is in that season the moment you find out that the professor is not really the one behind all of that. It's it, you just you're like, uh, as opposed to being shocked by this revelation or surprised or whatever your reaction might be, it's just so underwhelming. And when they had spent so much time focusing on the relation between the man who actually turns out to be the doomsday killer and the professor, well, yeah, obviously they're trying to show you how disturbed 
ideas and everything, but still, it just didn't work. It, it, to me, it, that, that really didn't work. Uh, and it, it really it took away from the Doomsday Killer himself. It took away from his menace. It just couldn't take him seriously at all, as opposed to realizing that, oh, well, wait, he actually killed his sister then. You're like, eh. You know what I mean? Because when you think about it, he did end up killing his sister in a brutal way and posed her for the cost to see. So that should have actually left a much stronger impact, and yet it really didn't. As a villain, I feel the Doomsday Killer was one of the weakest in Dexter history. Uh, hands down, for me, one of the worst. I mean, like I said, season two, you had the duality of Dokes trying to catch him and his psychotic new girlfriend, Lila. And they kind of made up for each other's weaknesses as far as being kind of the opposing force to Dexter. And then, so I mean, individually, and I not think to cut you of off, might... but no, go ahead. Not to cut you off, but at least Dexter had great chemistry with Dokes. Yeah, yeah. And Dokes was an interesting character in and of himself because here is, I think, undoubtedly the most morally centered character the show has ever seen. And that here's the law. Here's when you, you know, here's the good. Here's the bad. Here's where I stand. You had the most morally justifiable and morally good character. And not only did he feel the need to swear every other word, he was just an unlikable person as a general rule to begin with. Yeah, exactly. All right. Anything you want to say about uh, Season 7 of Dexter, since eight's going on right now? Is there anything you want to say about 7 before we wrap up? Yeah, well, other than it was highly disappointing. The problem with Season 7 is that it's not that it diverted from a formula. I'm fine with that. It's that the man who initially who was brought up to be, or you, okay, the man they spent the first, say, like six episodes building up as this huge menace to Dexter, turns out to be this gay Ukrainian. And not, I mean, I'm not knocking on the fire that easy. It's not him being gay doesn't make him any less menacing. But the revelation that he's this gay Ukrainian mobster who actually works with Dexter at the end, forgives him and dies. And sudden, I mean, it was just, that whole season was chaotic. It didn't have a clear villain. I mean, you you might consider Hannah McKay the villain and Dexter fell for her. But their dynamic, I I really hated their dynamic. I never thought they had much chemistry. Um, That sex scene where um, he cuts her off his table or, like, he, he unties her off his table and they have sex instead of killing her, it was supposed to work much better than that, yet it was so wooden. I mean, n- I really didn't think anything worked in that season other than the fact that um, Jennifer Carpenter's character really it shined, obviously. I mean, she's a terrific actress, but let's face it, that's not what, that's not what would make Dexter great as a show. You don't watch so there the was show no Dexter You don't watch the show Dexter Debra's to emotional see Debra. Yeah. Right, exactly. She's, I mean, she's great when she's there. We want her to be there, but her alone is not going to make up for a highly underwhelming, extremely flawed season. I mean, it's great that it, it made sense that they would focus on his relationship with her because that was the first season after she found out who her brother really is. So there was ex- always, I mean, we knew there was going to be much trauma and much dissension between them, and that's fine. But still, you needed to have something driving When, when the interaction between those two is the high point of your season, that's a, rare, that's a very low bar. Right, right. Because we're not, again, 
we're not seeing we knew they had great chemistry from season one the two of them as actors have great chemistry so we're we're only seeing a different side of that chemistry which is great but ultimately is not going to make up for every other downfall in the season and there were many i mean i as i said Sticking with the villain theme, I can't name you who's the villain. Like, the victor, the Ukrainian dude, is it Tana McKay? I mean, I guess she's the villain, but at the same time, that character never worked for me. I mean, she's she's easy on the eye. She's pretty to look at. But other than that, um, I found that when Dexter said, told her in the hospital that he loved her, I wanted to laugh because I found that to be a bit unbelievable. I mean, I... I couldn't take it seriously. And, yeah, I get it. He fell in love with a femme fatale. Okay, that's, I guess that that's supposed to be, you know, the, the, the main point of the season. But still, it's if she's supposed to be a threat to him, I mean, she was a threat to his relationship with his sister, maybe. But, and I, it was just chaotic. I, I mean, the reason why I'm really struggling to describe it is because the season makes you struggle while watching it. Yeah, yeah, it's just... You say it's chaotic. It's kind of all over the place, and nothing really seems to make as much sense as it should. Yeah, right. when you Same. compare that to how tightly written the first four seasons were, it, it gets all the more obvious. I'd even say five has some has some good writing in it. I mean, there are plenty of issues yeah. in five. Don't get me wrong, but the writing in and of itself is still actually pretty good. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Actually, season five, while not as good as the first four, or not as entertaining, is at least it's it's solidly written from from beginning to end. It's not all over the place. You know what's going on. You may not enjoy it, but at least you know what's going on. There aren't like 1,200 different things going on, none of which you actually care about. Yeah. There's something to be said for, co- for coherency, folks. We've there's a, In fact, there are whole podcasts dedicated to movies and movie series that lack coherence and consistency. All right. Uh, that's going to be it for us. Samer, do you have anything you want to plug this week before we go off the air here? I'll check out my column with uh, Jeremy Lambert just touching on multiple... Uh, talking points in MMA at the moment. We really, there wasn't a main theme, so we just touched on all the big things going on. Uh, pre the announcement of uh, BJ Penn and Frankie Edgar, um, check out a specific podcast dedicated to that very fight with myself, Mark Radulich, and Larry Zonka discussing our issues with this fight. And next week, just check out uh, Jeremy and I's preview of uh, John Jones against Alexander Gustafsson. And I'm, I'm uh, thanks for having me, Robert. I mean, it was, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, um, that's a fight I'm looking forward to. We haven't had many this year. So that's the can break down how many really inches of reach to. each guy has on each limb based on just the trailer. <laughs> I've seen that, actually. Yes. I mean, hey, the outcome might not be in doubt, but at least it's um, stylistically interesting. Doesn't mean you can't have so, yeah, fun there's, watching there's, it. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. And thanks for having me. Um, anytime I get to discuss something that isn't MMA, it's actually quite refreshing. After how aggravating talking about Frank Edgar versus BJ Penn was, this feels quite refreshing. Even talking about Dexter Season 7 isn't quite as irritating. But come on, BJ Penn will be training guys again. He'll be coaching because he was so right. great and in he'll Season move. 5. He's, he was awesome as a coach in Season 5. Yeah, he threw he that guy off the team. He wouldn't get... He wouldn't, yeah, and, and I can only imagine how many guys will be running rocks under a swimming pool. I mean, come on, that's great 
great anaerobic training right there. He has to bring a giant rock and right. make him carry it underwater. And then you need to leap out of that swimming pool the way BJ yep. did. Remember that when oh, yeah. he showed a video oh, of himself yeah. leaping out of like a three-foot swimming pool or something? Yeah. And that was supposed to show that he's in shape. Crazy. Uh, oh, brief note also kind of on BJ Penn. Are you going to be surprised if he fails to make 145? Yes, I will be because he's going to run underwater not with one rock this time, but with three. It's going to help with the weight cut. Actually, no, I wouldn't be. Honestly, with this fight, I really wouldn't be surprised at anything with the exception of BJ Penn actually showing up on weight, showing up um, looking good at 145 and actually winning the fight. Yeah, that would surprise me. But as the fight fell through because the fighter gets injured, because BJ Penn decides to say, screw it, I don't, I don't, I don't want to spend any time at the Tough House or coach any of these guys. I want to spend time in Hawaii with my daughter. Or if BJ Penn says, there's no possible way I'm, I'm making 145. Actually, I really wouldn't be surprised if, like, you know, they they end up settling on like catch weight or lightweight and change the fight contract altogether. At this point, I'm preparing myself for anything. None of which I actually care about. Though that's the problem. There isn't a single scenario I would care about to make me care about this fight. Uh, he'll be carrying three rocks underwater, and Mike Dolce will be screaming profanities at him from a boat above on the surface, because apparently he's reaching out to Mike Dolce. <laughs> Well, I would watch oh, that, that. That would be entertaining television. More entertaining than that season of Tough, I'm guessing. All right, Samer, it's absolutely great to have you on here. Anytime one of these comes up that you want to talk about, uh, you are more than welcome to. You're more than welcome here anytime. I, I like having you. I like having uh, any of my guests, really. But I, I definitely like having you on here because you're a very analytical person, and I, I like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the emotional responses as well, and getting Mark Radlich to go off on bubbles was a highlight of the Wire podcast for me. But an analytical mind is also fun to have around. So I'm very grateful you were able to make this, to be here for this one. Oh, thanks. Uh, what was the problem with bubbles? I think bubbles is awesome. But hey, if you don't want to revisit that, that's fine. But uh, really, thanks for having me. I'm sure I'll be on again. And it was yeah, really I a pleasure so. doing um, this. Just as an he doesn't care for bubbles because in Mark's real life he works with a lot of addicts, so he knows. Oh, He's been around okay. enough people okay, like well, bubbles that, okay, it's just another addict. I, I, that's understandable. Yeah. Right, uh, for my brief plugs, I have locked in the guillotine up. Now, if you're listening to this live, it's on 411 Mania in the MMA zone. I, go on a br- I have a bunch of reasons why I don't like the Frankie Edgar BJ Penn fight as well. Plus all of the news like Alistair Overeem facing off against Frank Mir. I have a video of what I think that fight will look like. It's a double knockout, folks, <laughs> at the same time. Which could I, it's just, that's the cl- This fight is the closest thing that we'll get to see to that being a possibility in the UFC ever. Any other fight, you know, it happens on lower cards at times. Guys knock each other out at the same time. If it's going to happen in the UFC, it'll be Alistair Overeem and Frank Mir. So I've got if that. They, it might happen. If they touch gloves, it really might happen. Just imagine them touching gloves and just going on contact. Uh, reminds me of that brief scene from the movie Sergeant Bilko when Bilko attempts to... He arranges for one fighter to throw the fight, but the guy he gives the money to to pay off the fighter takes it to the other guy who then thinks he's throwing the fight. So both fighters think they're trying to lose, and for like five rounds they don't do anything. Some guy hits a weak jab and both of them fall over in contact. Oh, well... I wouldn't mind if this is how this fight ends. At least it would be entertaining. Yeah. And maybe we would never have to see either of them. One can only hope. Um, I will also be on the 411 Ground and Pound radio show this Sunday. It's every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's a good time. Had by all. 
Uh, I think that's all I need to plug right now. And find the audio clip I used to get us out of here. There it is. So for Samer Cotty, the man who is one half of two people occupying the throne, for myself, I leave you with the words of Scarface once again. Thanks for listening, everybody. And remember to thank the bad guys because they make the brightness that goes on in your life that much brighter. So say goodnight to the bad guys.